Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this episode is part of our World in 30 Minutes mini-series on the end of the world. This is the place where we talk about how the global order, which has defined the world for the last few decades, is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams, or maybe even being reinvented as something else. This week, I am joined by Parag Khanna, who is, who is what? What are you? How do I present uh, Parag? Senior fellow at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, a former fellow of the European Council on Foreign Relations, and a few other think tanks here and there as well. And an author of lots of fantastic books on themes related to the liberal order. His first book was called Second World, and then that was followed up with a book on how to run the world. Mm -hmm. And his most recent book is called Connectography. Correct. So, Parag, when you think about your big thoughts about the future of, of world order, what does the liberal order actually mean in the real world? Great question. First of all, thanks for uh, having me on your, uh, being the first guest on your end of the world podcast. Have you ever been told you have a great voice for radio? Because uh, you do, Mark. Uh, oh, Prague. So, why liberal, I you on. it's <laughs> interesting, though, how you said, uh, I'm going to nitpick a little bit for definition's sake to kind of set, set the right, uh, you know, tone and concepts and parameters. So forgive me for just a second. But when you said at the outset that the liberal order has defined the world for the last few decades, let's bear in mind that you can't refer to a global liberal order up until at at most the last 20, 25 years, because there was this thing called the Cold War, which you're very familiar with, which divided the world to some extent. And there were too many countries outside of liberal order to really believe or claim that there was a global liberal order. So let's really just talk about the last quarter century that we can all remember so well, and all of the listeners can as well. In the last quarter century, you can say that there was the emergence of a truly global extension of that partial liberal order of the Cold War into a global liberal system, or the attempt to, through uh, you know the expansion of the WTO membership, IMF, World Bank, expansion of the European Union, um, you know, strengthening of the alliance system, you know, and, and generally the spread of capitalism and democratization. So you can say that the 1990s and early 2000s, let's say, there was a really a very brief period of history because so often in these conversations we get nostalgic and we act as if there was this global liberal order that existed not just for decades but for centuries. And it was the way of the world for all of time. It's not really true. It's just like when people say that the sovereign nation state is the immutable foundation of world order, you know, since 1648 at least. But we had this thing called colonialism and imperialism. You know, there was no actual global sovereign legal equality among states until the 1950s. Right. So just to cut a long story short, we're really just talking about, about a this liberal last... moment. So we're talking about a liberal moment. So let's try and yeah. delve a bit deeper into yeah. that liberal moment. Yeah. If you so you've mentioned some of the, the kind of transnational ideologies, democracy, capitalism, yeah. a certain idea of cooperation through multilateral institutions. Exactly. Um, and how uh, what you know, what if you look at that, what do you think? is now relatively durable and what was just a kind of momentary evanescent thing. Right. So I would focus on principles rather than on organizations. So for example, you could 
pretend that the World Bank and the IMF and the United Nations and in particular the Security Council are the embodiment of this liberal order and anything that undermines their centrality therefore is an erosion of liberal order. I disagree fundamentally. I do not confuse, as many people do, and I think this is a, a lesson that everyone needs to, to grasp, is that free trade is free trade, right? If it's fostered by the WTO, great. Uh, if not, that's okay. It's still trade liberalization. And trade liberalization is the priority, not that the World Trade Organization be the sole arbiter of trade. Human development and the investment in economic reform and opening or democratization and, and liberalism and governance. Those are worthy objectives. And whether it's the World Bank that pushes them or someone else that pushes them or the European Union, that's not as important as the fact that they happen, right? So I, I think this is important to stress because people say, oh my goodness, you know, there's rivals to the World Bank in, in infrastructure development spending. This must mean an erosion of the liberal order. Well, it doesn't. What it means first and foremost is that more capital is being spent on infrastructure development initiatives. And that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. You can have competition among institutions towards the same objective of development. It doesn't mean that the liberal order is falling apart. So we have to stop being so institution-centric about these things. Yeah. Um, but then, so I think the, U, the EU is still going to be really, really important. The EU is still, is still expanding, for example. Its membership is growing. Its economic really? footprint is growing. Really? expanding to? Didn't Croatia just join? A few years ago, yeah. Yeah. So who who who's it expanded to? At I the mean, moment? the the whole South Balkans will eventually join too, right? I don't know. You're the you're the expert. Maybe you <laughs> know. <laughs> on this one, I defer to you. Look, there is a pattern going back, obviously, to the early 1990s of incremental expansion, okay. and Brexit doesn't invalidate that. And uh, and the fact is, you haven't had. Uh, you know, the Eurozone fall apart either. But I know we don't want to focus just on, we want to be global um, in this conversation. But, I mean, there are two things which are being elided in what you're saying, though, because there's order and there are different right. ways that that can be expressed through different institutions. Right. Um, and then there's the kind of liberal bit. Maybe you could be a bit more granular about what yeah. you mean by the liberal I, bit. I think we should. Well, we should be more granular about order first because okay. a lot of people use the word order to, again, refer to the organizations and institutions that yeah. they think of. But that's not what order is. Order, it's not negotiable what the definition were. The definition of order is the distribution of power in the system and the stability of that distribution of power. It has nothing to do with whether it's a liberal order or an but illiberal can, order. But you can have order with, with power. Well, we have an changing. order today. It doesn't have to be, Mark, we, have, to we be have a stable global order today. It is a stable multipolar distribution of power in which the North American region and particularly the United States as its anchor, the European Union or the European sort of commonwealth of states that are dependent on the, on the European core with Germany as a driver and an Asian system that is emerging with with China and Japan to some degree as the economic anchors and India as well there this is a tripolar world if you look at the distribution of global GDP of global military capability it is perfectly identifiably and stably multipolar so that is the real order in the world but all the organizations and structures on top of that may come and go but that is the order in the world today. Okay, I don't want to quibble too much, but uh, the idea of Asia as a single pole seems maybe 
as a bit of a stretch given that it is a pretty multipolar order yes, in is. and of itself. It is, absolutely. With very several true. poles. Very true. And the balance power between them not very stable. It's right. kind of radically shifting. True. So let's remember that an order itself doesn't necessarily connote that there's no conflict within or no tension between the, 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 the anchors in that system. So you're absolutely right. Asia is a multipolar and certainly a uh, uh, not a hegemonic, but certainly an unequal system unto itself. But my point is that on a global level, you wanted to get into the whole issue of liberal or yeah, not. Yeah. You can't call Asia a liberal order. And if more than 50% of the planet's population is living in Asia, and that is not an ideologically liberal order, it is a multipolar system of Asian countries, which have very different political systems and norms. You can't say that there is a global liberal order if most of the world's population is not living in a liberal order. Right. Okay. So um, there is no liberal order at a global level. And but what? How would you define liberal? Because you're basically are you saying Asians can't be liberal? No, not I would never say that. In fact, there's plenty of liberalism in Asia in the sense that you used it earlier, which is to say the rules based uh, international multilateral system of um, you know that that favors open market economies and democratic governance and so forth. Right. There is also presumably an element which is about the the. A primacy of the individual and uh, a belief in and individual of course, rights. Individual rights. Is that un Asian? No, of course not. I mean, Asia is liberalizing in terms of domestic social evolution uh, quite rapidly. Its political systems may or may not reflect that liberalism, but the openness of societies. Um, and to some degree, the extent to which their governments seek to be more accountable, even if they are not becoming more democratic in a verifiably electoral way, is absolutely a part of Asian life. You can't travel in Asia and visit the countries of India, Southeast Asia, even Northeast Asia, even China to some degree and not appreciate the extent to which there is a growing openness in these societies, even as their governments... Uh, according to various metrics, are not liberalizing or democratizing the way we would expect them to. So there is absolutely no um, necessary antagonism between Asian society and culture and and sort of you know individualism and liberalism per se. Okay, so um, can you maybe then complete the kind of link between the two halves of what you're saying? Because you're basically saying we don't have a global liberal order because most people live in countries that are not liberal. Most people no. live in... That's what you just said. Uh, I said <laughs> that most people in the world do not live in countries that belong to a multilateral liberal order multilateral. system. Okay. That's what I said. I was not in any way referring right. to individuals. Okay. You, you're, I think, you know, because we, we do this very often, we, we conflate the domestic characteristics of the society and our yeah. attempts to judge and generalize about all people. You know, for example, let's take India, because it's not a small country. Ten years from now, it'll be the most populous country in the world. Yeah. There are so many people in Western scholarship and analysis who say, well, India, it's the world's largest democracy. It's a pillar of this idea of what could be a global liberal order. Yeah. I mean, only you only need to spend five minutes in India to understand how illiberal uh, many elements of Indian society are and the fact that the government that they have today that is being praised for its effectiveness and if you will for its technocratic competence is reflective of very significant 
um, you know, illiberal elements like yeah. religious chauvinism and misogyny yeah. and so forth. You just scratch the surface of this supposedly wonderful democratic liberal yeah. India, and you see how illiberal it is. So let's not generalize about the domestic society. Yeah. I was focusing only on the structure and pointing yeah. again. The fact is. Most countries in the world, most societies in the world, most human beings in the world don't live under what we think of as the Anglo-Saxon-led, transatlantic, liberal, rules-based, multilateral system. That's yeah. a fact. Yeah. Okay. So if we look forward then, do you think that, um, that this liberal order, which was momentarily there after the end of the Cold War, uh, but which many people don't live in countries which are... Uh, kind of committed to it is something which is retreating and is kind of disappearing or do you think it's um, it's going to advance and get entrenched or is it a mixed picture that in some areas there there might be functional reasons to, to move forward mm-hmm. and others backwards I mean what's your kind of I think that sense? there's plenty of stability in the intra-western liberal order that will survive even the transatlantic tensions that exist today. I think the United States and the European Union and Latin America will continue to find ways to arbitrate their differences and even continue to integrate if they want to have TTIP, for example. So you think Trump is is just a temporary phenomenon rather than a big change? Generally speaking, I don't worry in the same way that I don't worry about war within among Western European societies. I don't worry about Trump fundamentally derailing um, the notion of stability, peace, and and uh, and mutual benefit of relations, meaning you know trillion dollars of trade every year, huge movement of peoples and goods and services, and a general sense of mutual understanding. I don't see Trump as derailing that. It obviously is bad for America's image, <laughs> without a doubt. And I do think that separately, as you and I have discussed, there is this multi-decade phenomenon of Europe trying to find its own voice and way and institutional anchors that do not rely on United States resources and power to conduct its own strategic posture in the world. And and I do think that the European Union is moving that direction. I think it's a good thing. We can clearly see the differences between the way the EU deals with China and the way the United States deals with China and their attitudes towards sanctions on Russia and Iran differ fundamentally from the mainstream in the United States. So clearly Europe is becoming an independent pole of power, which I think is a good thing. It doesn't mean that the Western liberal order is falling apart in the sense of it being a stable order unto itself. But your real question, I think, is even more important. And it's at the global level. Clearly there are multiple institutional orders and arrangements that coexist. They don't compete as much as people think they do. It's very easy to take a map and to draw some continents blue and others red and say, here's a whole bunch of countries that are now part of China's Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and One Belt, One Road, and therefore China is spreading this illiberal system and therefore the you know liberal system has to compete with it. Not true, because as you know, every single European country has joined this Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and you now have countries that are members of NATO, like Turkey, which are you know increasingly illiberal in their government, and they even are thinking of applying to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So you could have countries that belong to both orders at the same time. How are you going to square that circle? You can't paint them two colors on this simple, oversimplified, bifurcated map. You have to appreciate that these systems 
or overlapping in many ways. And one of the important things is that if you actually want to spread the liberal order, as I'm sure both of us do, you want to see the spread of, um, you know, human rights, democracy, you want to see these certain kinds of value systems flourish, you would actually support some of the things that China is doing. You would support infrastructure investment, modernization of economies, things, forces that ultimately help societies to raise incomes, to create a middle class, to ultimately seek more political voice. Not, those things aren't going to happen just by pointing a finger at countries and saying, shame on you, you joined a Chinese financial institution. So I like to think that these orders are more potentially symbiotic than we think they are, and therefore oversimplifying about where an order is or where it is not is a dangerous mistake. But there are big differences. I mean, you talked about these kind of three... Uh, systems. There is a European system where actually membership of the system depends on signing up in a pretty uncompromising way Absolutely. to liberal uh, rules, not just about international relations, but the entire domestic constitution of the country gets changed if you join the European Union. Then you have the, the, the US, which is kind of uh, more complicated. More a la carte, you could say. I think they sort of <laughs> believe in, in binding institutions for everyone else, but not so much for themselves. And they have quite a liberal system of government for themselves. But what matters more in terms of their relations with other countries, there's a general bias in favour of democracy. But more important is that people are on the American team in every part of the world so that you have a balance of power that favours the US in, in their mm. different parts of the world. And then China seems to be quite a different system. Yeah. I mean, maybe talk a bit about the Chinese system because that's been less kind of written about and it's something that right. you've been thinking about sitting in Singapore as you do. You're part of the Chinese system. You've got to No, really again, you know, I emphasize the Asian <laughs> system. I think that people, again, outside of Asia very readily oversimplify and they look at a map and they see Asia and they see that China is the largest country, that it neighbors more countries than any other, that it's the largest economy and largest population and has obviously very robust military investment. And therefore, Asia is conveniently under Chinese hegemony. Again, not actually true. Uh, you know, the more time you spend in Asia, the more you realize that, again, within one decade, India will have the largest population in the world. It has a faster growing economy. The countries of ASEAN, the 10 countries, have a population that's only half that of India or China, but receive more foreign investment than China does and have a larger GDP than India. Then you've got Japan, which is still effectively, uh, you know, a, a, basically as large an economy still as China, um, just not in PPP terms. Um, but clearly, um, you know, it's it's still a power in Asia and to some degree a very large part of the economy of Asia because the external finance of Japan is greater than that of China. Right. So, again, it's very easy if all you're doing is counting nuclear warheads. But the way the world really works is that Japanese finance is a crucial part of this Asian system. And people who think strictly in military strategic terms are simply not educated or trained to understand this fact. But there is a strong Japanese component to this Asian system, a strong Indian component demographically and economically. And of course, China may be stronger than the others, but that's why, as we agree, it is a multipolar Asian system. It is a different kind of system than the European system, which is supranational and much more demanding. But the fact that Europe has the most rules-based system of the different regions in the world doesn't mean that the others aren't also 
systems. They're just different kinds of systems. So, so what are the, and the Asian one is much more rudimentary. So what are the main kind of components of the Asian system apart from a balance of power between the different countries? That's an important part. But what hap one, the primary definition of any system is that the members of the system or most of them, you know, have relations with each other that are as significant or voluminous as their relations with the outside world. So you can see that most Asian countries have China as their largest trading partner. Most Asian countries have China as their largest foreign investor. Um, there is a remarkably sort of, you know, there's a ever growing... That's true of most countries in the world now. Yes. Increasingly, if it was a single country. It was the EU before, probably still is the EU collectively for... If you, well, but, Europe, but, but, as a, but if you look yeah. at the, the EU was yeah. broken down into different countries, right. then China will yeah. be the biggest yeah. trading partner for most so countries. The total volume of trade in the world within Europe is still greater, yeah. obviously, but your, China as a single country is the number one trading partner, more than 120 yeah. countries in the world. So most countries in the world yeah. do have China as their number one trading partner. That alone doesn't connote that, therefore, all these countries are vassals of China. Nothing, you know, that, that, is, that is not remotely the case, obviously. So certainly not true of Japan. Is Japan a vassal of China just because it exports lots of Toyota cars to Japan, to China? No, we need a more sophisticated understanding. So the density of economic relations, yeah. the growing number of diplomatic institutions, all of those are part of in the increasing systemness of Asia. Is it so going to be an Asian union? So what are the other ones? No. Infrastructure, finance, road, infrastructure, yeah. finance, trade, uh, strategic ties and relationships, yeah. the growing number of military exercises, okay. the ability ideally to peacefully resolve disputes or at least to manage them, which, by the way, is a feature of Asia because the fact that you have North the Korea... ASEAN way. Yeah, you, know, you could call it that, but I'd prefer not to uh, because that's a bit of an insult to peacemaking. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but here's the deal. You know, for the last... We spent the last 20 years pretending as if World War III has already broken out between Asian countries and these countries just simply can't manage their differences. And it's a foregone conclusion that China or Taiwan, China and Japan, China and yeah. India, India and Pakistan, South China Sea are all going to blow up, but they haven't yet. So I, clearly there is something so in this system yeah. that is managing these disputes. So this is an important bridge. I wasn't expecting to talk to you for 25 minutes just about states because like most of your writing and most of your mental energy goes into a world that's beyond states you've written this book about connectography and you say yeah when you look at the map you shouldn't just look at the physical boundaries between different countries right. you should look at the infrastructural connections yeah yeah supply chains absolutely what happens at night the lights from all of these mega cities right. which cut across which are to, to what extent is that a liberal order is there a kind of alternative liberal order is that why asians aren't aren't blowing each other up because no. there is a, a kind of alternative non-state that's a order. big part of it i wouldn't call it a liberal order it's a part of a market order right so the market principle of supply and demand the law of supply and demand which is obviously an ancient microeconomic principle if you will is is the anchoring principle of the supply chains that connect ever more countries, societies, cities together, and they do play a powerful role in restraining states from fighting with each other. You can see this in Sino-Japanese relations. You can see it in Sino-American relations. Don't forget that America's two of America's biggest companies, Walmart and Apple, uh, which are two of the biggest companies on earth, have most of their supply chain located in China. So before you were to have any kind of an escalation militarily, between the U.S. and China, you'd probably want to uh, inform Walmart 
an apple of this so that they could relocate their supply chain so that the American stock market doesn't tank the next day. Now again, I find it nothing more than quaint and cute that so-called American strategic thinkers who look at the military maneuvering have the upper hand in these conversations because their lack of knowledge of economics, technology, supply chains is part of the reason why we don't have sophisticated strategic thinking because they're not educated enough to understand the complexity of supply chain relationships and how important they are in the decision making between states. But what's so, the yes, relationship between the two if you think about this yeah. as a two level game? Between supply chains and state level decision making? Yeah, or, or the other kind of links that you've written about in connectography between... So infrastructural links and supply chain links are related, but but not the same, right? The infrastructural links are literally physically binding glue, right? Yeah. It is railways, it is electricity grids, yeah. it is uh, internet cables and yeah. so forth. You still have tensions over the revenues over those. So take gas pipelines between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. You can still have war between countries that are linked by physical infrastructure. Yeah. It clearly happens. You had Saudi Arabia. Arabia invade Bahrain because they built a friendship bridge connecting Saudi Arabia and Bahrain 20 years ago, but it became a pathway for conquest. So infrastructure does not invalidate the idea of conflict. Throughout all of human history, we use infrastructure as a mechanism of advancing conquest. It's the weaponization of infrastructure. It's called the Roman Empire. It's called the British Empire. All of history is examples of that. So the infrastructure itself ties societies more closely together upon which they can develop the supply chains that would deepen their economic ties such that the costs of conflict go up. And that is, in fact, what has happened between many, many countries. Um, and so you can see that motivation at play when you look at uh, again, China-Taiwan, China-Japan, even Western relations with Iran, where you have, even in the absence of really robust relations, the potential economic gains from trade and investment with Iran are playing a very significant role in the management of escalation militarily with Iran. Yeah. So even the absence of those supply chains, the allure of those supply chains, even where they don't even exist, is so significant that it is part of the reason why there has not been war with Iran. Okay. Can I, um, we're sort of coming towards the end, so I've got a number of more kind of quick fire things. They're quite big questions, but if you okay. could give me kind of shortish right. answers. <laughs> one second answers to Not one long second questions. answers, but no, but one of the kind of complicated things is this whole question of nation states, because yeah. we've sort of been through various different phases. In the 90s, everyone wrote about the end of the nation state, how irrelevant they were, but we've seen, particularly in Asia, quite a lot of nationalism. Right. How do you see the role of the nation state in this kind of world? Nation states and nationalism are actually, again, obviously very related phenomena, but are also not the same thing. So again, quick answer, right? Um, I've been, a lot of articles that I've written have carried the title End of the Nation State, which is kind of yeah. hilarious because I would never have given those those articles that title because my work is about devolution so i actually celebrate nationalism and more nation states because i argue that the more nations you have the less autarkic they can be and therefore they have to have more connectivity between them in order to survive economically so nations and nationalism are extremely important in my evolutionary model of how you get to a world where peaceful supply chains operate more beneficially, mutually beneficially. Why so I'm not think, against the nation but, state. But these nations... I'm for it. There's both, like, there's 
kind of protectionism on trade but like increasingly immigration is a big issue for all of these different things i mean that nation states are building walls or at least talking about it yeah exactly and i think we talk about it more than we do it and this is the reason why the kind of economist view of the world you know or the london view of the world where we happen to be sitting is not the reality of the world thank god you know and i have to correct this uh, this misunderstanding all the time i love reading articles that say walls are going up everywhere look at serbia and hungary and brexit you know it's like oh last time i checked that's not the whole world let me you know uh let me inform you that you know all of africa has decided that it's going to go to a visa-free zone by 2020 and that asean 700 million people have free mobility of people this is all in the last couple of years so two billion people have just decided that there will be no walls between their countries but because of Brexit, the whole world has been hijacked by nationalistic populism. So the Eurocentricness of the conversation that's supposed to be global is quite frankly disgusting to me because it's so woefully inaccurate about the reality. So yeah, let's talk protectionism. The fact is that you still have a, a growth in trade liberalization around the world. You have protectionist measures that are talked about and even implemented, yeah. but you have a way greater volume of trade liberalization so, and flows of capital, of goods, of people, of services around the world. Except flows of goods have stopped growing very fast. Which is also wrong, right? There has been a deceleration in the growth yeah. in the trade of goods. Absolutely. But that's like saying that China has stopped growing. It has decelerated. But here's the other problem. You're only I, looking at the flow of goods, which yeah. is a small no, no, and small I know small you're going to talk about data flows, which leads yeah. me to my next question about technology, uh, which you've written a lot about as well. To what extent do you think technology is bringing the world together as opposed to kind of dividing it and creating cyber attacks and other kinds of conflicts well, I mean, between different people? I don't really believe in this together apart kind of bifurcation. That's not the, the right way, I think, to... It, it makes the world more connected. Let's be only analytical and factual about our statements. Technology makes the world more connected. Yes or no? Yes. Does it create opportunities for people to get to know each other better and have more international friends and contacts uh, that they would not otherwise have based purely on physical geography yes it does does it enable far more flows of data and services and information online that becomes a really huge part of the global economy yes whether or not that can be manipulated or weaponized through cyber attacks obviously it can does that mean that connectivity is therefore going to be switched off that the costs of connectivity because of the vulnerability of cyber attacks outweighs the benefits of connectivity through trade and exchange and access to information obviously it doesn't because if it did we would cut off all our internet cables but instead we're building more internet cables so what we've learned is that the connectivity is worth the price of vulnerability but we try to, as best we can to manage that vulnerability. We try to be connected but secure at the same time. And that's an ongoing process that's unfolding. Okay. But there's no country in the world that wants to be less connected tomorrow than it is today. Even isolated places like Bhutan and North Korea, which are isolated for very different reasons, want more connectivity with the world. Even Britain, after Brexit, realized we made a big mistake. We need to be more connected. Let's declare a strategy called Global Britain. Global Britain doesn't sound like the kind of strategy that would emerge from Brexit until a country realizes just how valuable connectivity is. Yeah, I think Global Britain says more about Britain than about the about its connections with the globe. But that's, a, that's another <laughs> podcast. But on um, uh, maybe like a final kind of uh, uh, question about connectivity generally is like if, if the trends and I find it because it's being very rich and complicated discussion. So I find it difficult to kind of 
summarise in a single sentence. But I suppose what we what you are kind of arguing is that our idea of a single liberal order is kind of broken. What we're seeing is a much more complicated order with three main drivers in it, a European driver, an American driver and a kind of Asian system, which is kind of evolving. So if we take that kind of uh, with greater connectivity coming down the line and countries becoming more liberal internally, even if international relations are not doing that, hopefully that's a fair summary of what we've done so far. If you, so if that is a fair summary, who are going to be the winners and losers in the next kind of 10, 20 years time? What Great countries question. are going to do well or who's going to do badly? So it is an unprecedented global order that is multipolar and multi-civilizational, which we've never had before, where you have Asian-grade powers, Western-grade powers coexisting, and their connections with each other are growing very significantly, right? Let's not forget American trade with Asia growing. American trade with Europe is growing. European trade with Asia is growing faster than any, any other pair of regions in the world, thanks to free trade agreements and One Belt, One Road. So winners and losers are those that are more connected in more directions because they are able to benefit from the growth in other parts of the world. So the more connected you are to Asia, the more connected you are to the Middle East, economically at least, the more you are benefiting from global connectivity. So, so who, winners are those some that countries are the most winners connected. and some that are losers. Well, it's all relative, right? It's yeah. where were you 10 years yeah. ago? You know, India is becoming a winner because not right. only is it more people, but it's younger population okay. and so forth. Come on, forth, we're but, running yeah. out of time here. Just want a right. list of, of who the, who the, who the, where would you want to live if you were like choosing to live in the next few years if you wanted to? Well, I think being mobile is probably countries. the best virtue of all because you never know what could go wrong in terms okay. of disruption. But who are but, the top 10 winners? Oh, my God. Uh, that's a really good question. But, you know, they're not they're winners for different reasons. The United States is still a winner because okay. the United States has right. autarky, basically. Okay. Let's just have the countries. Um, the U.S. Uh, you know, India, India is doing great. Um, you know, China is still doing fine and okay. improving in quality of life. Um, commodities countries are losers. You wanted losers too. So hey, we want some more winners first though. Okay, but uh, <laughs> well, unreformed and unrestructured, undi- non-diversified commodities exporters are losers. Just to okay. put that off so to the who side. Are they? Just like off like few, Russia and Saudi Arabia and Nigeria and Brazil okay. uh, are obvious candidates. And those are, by the way, very large countries. Let's okay. not forget. Um Countries that are moving up the value chain and, you know, investing and improving their infrastructure and quality of life, places like Vietnam, places like the Philippines, their societies are much better off today than they were 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I look at these, you know, middle income countries that are hopefully either reaching middle income or hopefully finding ways to get beyond the middle income trap. Those countries are going to be winners. And Europe, are they winners or losers? Was it a mixed picture? It's a mixed picture. Depends on how you define Europe. Okay, tell uh, me. Uh, I think Germany, of the, winner or loser? the important Europe to me is the Eurozone countries, okay. right? And I'm still relatively optimistic about the uh, stability of the Eurozone and its recovery economically. Okay. And so who are the losers in Europe then? The losers in Europe? The Maybe those who are not going to be in the, who are not in the in the eurozone, those who are going to find themselves on the losing end of competitive dynamics with a much larger economic region that they so don't Britain. want to join. Britain's in very big Sweden. trouble. What about Sweden? Well, Sweden is again smaller, no open way. economies with fewer mouths to feed and lots of natural resources okay. are going to be better off. All right. Okay. We'll try and put these in, in some order on the website, the Parag's list of winners and losers. For what it's so, worth, yeah. London will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When it's an independent state. You might Which I have advocated. <laughs> 
Great. And so the, uh, that's been it's been a great discussion. We will try and make sense of this and we'll also put some links to some of the things that you've written, Parag. Um, but as well as the things that you've written, um, if you were trying to draw up a reading list for people who want to know more about the future of the liberal order, what kind of things do you think they should read? Either articles or books which would help them make sense of the big topics we've been discussing now. I thought you could summarize all of this with the world is going to end. Wasn't that the original <laughs> conceit of the podcast? <laughs> Um, look, there's a lot of debates. There's a flourishing of literature. I follow the same publications that you do when it comes to those that have a bias towards the Western liberal order as narrow geographically as it may be, whether it's, um, you know, the the foreign affairs and foreign policies and politicos and New York Times types of publications in the world. Obviously, uh, you know, no, no weekly digest is complete without your ECFR uh, <laughs> reports and task forces and white papers. Those are also very important. Um, are there any books that have made you think again over the last couple of years? Only yours, Mark. <laughs> I haven't uh, written any for a decade. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's obviously not true. But um Okay, you don't want to name a single book other than the ones you've written. Just read my <laughs> books. You'll be fine. That's all you need. I cite, you know, read, okay, fine. Read my bibliographies. <laughs> How about that? Okay, great. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you, Parag. We're going to have to come back in a, in a few years' time if the world hasn't ended and see how wrong we were about all the things that we talked about. But we will put links to all of the uh, writings that Parag has done on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please do tell people about it through social media. And even more importantly, write a review of the podcast on iTunes. In order to encourage you to do this, we have decided to create a special commemorative mug for the End of the World series. And if you write a review, we will, even if it's bad, we will send you an End of the World mug to your address. So please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu with a link to your review and an address to send the mug to and you will have something which will make you the envy of your family and friends and will hopefully enjoy thinking about the podcast uh, every time you have a coffee in the morning. But for now, from Parag Khanna and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. We would like to thank the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs for kindly supporting the research that went into this podcast. Mm-hmm.